or maybe find your seat first, then turn in your Bibles. And um, some of our young guys here, I'll uh, ask them to help us help uh, find some seats. Um, turn your Bibles to Romans 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 20 of Romans 3. We are continuing in our series on the book of Romans. And before I begin, I wanted to let you know I'm going to put a cough drop in. So apologies ahead of time if you hear anything weird. Um, You can pray for me this morning. I'm going to pray for myself as well. Um, I have a a scratch in my throat and I pray that it doesn't get worse. And I hope it doesn't affect you as as well. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans 3. You know, sometimes sickness is a reminder that we just need God and we're dependent creatures, isn't it? Um, Well... Um, Let's turn your Bibles, Romans 3, 1 through 20. This is God's holy, inspired word for us today. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But if some were unfaithful, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's holy inspired word. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that is good, that that lays us bare, that reveals our hearts and minds, Lord, that reveals the utter sinfulness of sin and, Lord, our utter inability. God, thank you that you reveal 
our lostness so that we might be found. But Lord, I pray this morning that we would be aware that we are desperate without you. We, we have no hope in and of ourselves and that we need you. God, I'm aware of that physically for myself. I pray that you would bring healing to my body. Father, I pray for each and every one of us, Lord. We, we might be tired. There might be others here who are sick, God. There might be people here who are having trouble concentrating. Lord, I pray for your help, for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, help us all pay attention to your word. Help us give attention to you. Let us hear from your Holy Spirit. Would you speak to us? Would you speak through me, Lord? And would you speak um, to all of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I hate it when I can't do something. Uh, I know that sounds awful to admit. I mean, you know, there's lots of things that I know I can't do. I don't try to do those things. You know, I, I don't like basketball probably primarily because I'm no good at it. So I don't, I don't even try. So I don't get frustrated not being able to play basketball. I don't expect I can. But I hate it when I think I can do something and I really can't. I don't think I've seen any more clearly than when I'm working on, and I'm not going to look at my family right now, when I'm working on my car or working around the home. When I can't figure something out that I think I should be able to do, I get frustrated. And sometimes just outright angry. Can you relate? I don't know if you can or not. Can you, you ever get frustrated? You ever get angry when there's something you think you should be able to do, when something you, you, you feel like you should be able to do this, and you know you should be able to do it, you know better, and yet you can't do it. You ever get frustrated with not being able to do something? You ever get frustrated with weakness, with inability? I don't like it. I can get angry because I should be able to do this thing. I don't, I, I don't like making mistakes. I don't like messing up. I don't think anybody really loves making mistakes and messing up, but especially when you know you should be able to do something, it bothers me. It eats at me. I don't like it. You know, when I'm working on a car, it shouldn't be so hard for me. After all, you know, I'm competent. It's something I ought to do, I'm, but I'm not doing it right. I get angry deep down, I think, as well. Behind all my overt frustrations, I think, is an idolatrous, hideous thought that, that this thing, whatever it might be, this car part or this house project, this thing should be submitting to me because ultimately I'm God. Because ultimately everything should, should fall under my dominion and subdue, right? You ever, you ever feel that way? You ever feel like things should just go your way? And you get mad when things don't go your way. You know, I, I think it's because I, I feel like things should bow to my will. I know it's awful to admit, isn't it? It sounds pretty horrible to admit. But when I'm getting angry when things don't go, to my, go my way, it's as if I'm saying, you know, everything should bow to me. Uh, and I'm also getting angry because I don't like the way it makes me feel. Because I don't like to feel inadequate. I don't think any of us like to feel inadequate. And I don't like to feel unable, weak, feeble, and helpless. How about you? Do you like to feel weak? Anybody here love to feel weak, helpless, feeble, unable? Anybody here at all love that feeling? Anybody here really like admitting an area you're not good at that you should be? Anybody here really just think, you know what, I love that I'm just not good enough. You know, I tried really hard in school, but I was never good enough. I don't think anybody brags about those things. You know, I, I tried really hard at work, but I got fired from every job I had. Yay! Nobody does that. Now, you might be humble and admit those things, but nobody likes to admit that you can't do it. But you know what? It's only when we admit we can't do something that we can actually begin to change. 
in those things that we can say, hey, I need help. I don't understand algebra. I need help. I'm glad my kids don't ask me for help with algebra anymore. They know better. Because <laughs> I said to them, I can't do that anymore. I did a lot of math all the way through calculus in high school. I don't remember any of it now. But you know, when it comes to being the important things, when it comes to being completely righteous, the only way for you to begin to experience change and actually to be made righteous, it's counterintuitive, it's for you to come to the place where you say, I can't. I'm completely unable. I'm completely unrighteous. I can't be righteous on my own. I'm no good at it. I should be able to do this. I should be able to obey God's laws. I should be able to respond, but I cannot. I can't do it. And it's only when we realize we're completely and totally unable to be truly righteous in anything that we do. That's when God's grace changes us and we can receive his righteousness by faith. The Apostle Paul, he's been getting at this the whole first three chapters of Romans so far. Ever since Romans 1, 16 and 17, when Paul says that he's, he's not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to, to anyone who believes. He says it's, it's the power of God for salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And then he told us that the righteous shall live by faith. But right after that, he launches into this great exposition of how everybody's unrighteous. And why is he doing that? We touched on it a little bit last week, and really the last two weeks, I was telling Jessica this morning, I said, you know, um, this portion of Romans, from Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20, it's a downer. It's, it's a big downer. It's meant to be a big downer. It's meant to get us to the place where we realize we can't. We're not righteous. We have no righteousness in ourselves. And why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that in response to, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, there's a righteousness that comes to us, and you're like, well, big deal. That's a present, Paul, that I don't know that I need, that I don't care that I need. It's like on Christmas morning, if you were given some random, I don't know, some random gift, maybe, uh, maybe for a guy, it's like a bunch of dish towels, and you're like, oh, great, thank you. I'm so happy about this. I didn't really know I needed that, but thank you. You know, you, you don't know you need a gift, then you're not going to relish the gift. You're not going to receive the gift the same. And so Paul has been showing us and just hammering us for it. Now this is the third week in a row for us as a church. But the, the third chapter now he's on and he's showing us that, that we have no ability to be righteous on our own. Chapter 2, he, he addressed those who are moral, the religious and the people, the Jews, and he laid out all the reasons why they are without excuse. You know, at first you're thinking, well, Gentiles, they're without excuse because they don't have the truth, they don't know God, they're really bad, they're really wicked, and I'm glad I'm not like those people. And maybe for a lot of us we thought, you know what, I'm not as bad as that. You know, I'm not out doing whatever you think is the worst sin imaginable. You're not doing human trafficking. You're not like those Gentiles, you're not that bad. In comparison to another human, you might think you're pretty good. And so in chapter 2, Paul says, you who are righteous and you, or you think you're righteous and you're judging other people in comparison to them, you're not judging yourself with the right standards. You've got the law. You actually have all the right information and you still can't obey it. He says, you're without excuse. And he says, in fact, even for the Jew who's circumcised, you've got this external sign that you're part of God's people 
but it doesn't mean that you're actually a part of God's people because you need a circumcision of the heart. And that's where we ended with last week. You need to be circumcised in your heart. You need the Holy Spirit to, to apply the circumcision of Christ to you. He was cut off so that we don't have to be. And all of this is meant to provoke a response. Wait a minute, Paul. If we cannot trust in anything that we do, we can't even trust. We've been given all these scriptures and knowledge, and we've even been given the church and good practice. And Paul, if we do all these things, we have all the right knowledge, we even know about God, you mean we can't even trust in that? So what's the hope? And that's where we're at this morning, and Paul hits us here, and it's meant to provoke a response. And so he sets up this hypothetical argument against what he's been telling us. And, and because it's probably a common argument that he received as he went around from synagogue to synagogue in the book of Acts, traveling around, sharing the gospel. And so he probably heard this question a lot. And so he writes this question down for us. And he's, he's writing because this challenges our pride. It challenges our innate pride when we see that Paul is driving to this conclusion that mankind is totally unrighteous. Because you know what? We don't like that. We like to think, you know, I'm pretty good in some ways. I'm better than so-and-so. I'm better than the guy next door who beats his dog or whatever you think of. You know, I'm better than the the guy who's, who's shooting up or mainline and coke or whatever. You know, I'm better than those people. I'm better than this person. I'm better than... And you can fall into this trap of feeling like you have some righteousness of your own. And so Paul now is telling us really this main idea we're going to focus on the, on the passage is that because mankind is totally unrighteous. Because mankind is totally unrighteous. Mankind is totally in need of God's righteousness. And he's setting us up. He's setting us up to see that we are totally unrighteous we we are not righteous we're completely other than righteous and so we're totally in need and that's where it ends in verse 20 we we end in need and so you think well the religious person the jew might object and that's what we see in these first eight verses really is is these religious objections these jewish objections to that and as if somebody says hey wait a minute paul hang on if if god didn't he provide a way to be righteous in the Old Testament? And you think, well, yeah, sure, he provided a way to be righteous in the Old Testament. Well, if he provided this way to be righteous in the Old Testament by the law, is the argument at least that's being given. If you're saying that God made a way to be righteous and that he called a people to himself, but as a whole they never really were, then, then hasn't God failed? That's what a thinking individual might respond like wait a minute so if god called people to be righteous and he made a way to be righteous and he called a people to himself but they never actually were righteous hasn't god's calling failed is the question that paul raises if not then he says well what benefits what advantage is being a religious person what what advantage is being raised maybe for us today in a religious home what what advantage is it to to have Christian knowledge, understanding, to have the Bible, to, if you're a Jew, to be circumcised, is there any advantage? Is what Paul, the question he's answering. You know, did God fail to carry out his plans with the Jews? And, and because not all the Jews came to him? And so, if not all the Jews came to him through the covenant of circumcision, is, are they any better? Do you see the arguments that Paul is answering, that he's setting up and he's answering here? 
And he answers each of these questions. Really, in the first eight verses, there's five questions that, that the Apostle Paul answers. Five logical, if you're thinking through it, five what seems like logical conclusions that he takes, he sets up, and he tears them apart. And what he's doing is he's showing us in, in these first eight verses that man's failure doesn't mean that God has failed. Because man can't be good enough. Because man has failed. Because man is not righteous. Because man has disobeyed. Because man has not trusted in God by faith. Does not mean that God has failed nor have his promises failed. And that's what we see. Imagine that I, 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 I went out and I built a bridge across this chasm. And I, it was a sturdy bridge. It was a very good bridge. and It was a thousand feet above the water. And it was a, it was a, a solid bridge. And it had solid sides and before you get the sides had guardrails but it was a narrow bridge but it was easy to go across if you just stayed on the bridge and imagine that I built this bridge and then traffic goes across and in this country at least it's illegal to drive drunk but imagine then that a man comes and he decides to drive drunk and he decides to try to drive across this bridge but in his drunken stupor he doesn't stay in his lane. He veers out of the lane. He goes through the guardrail. He goes outside the barrier and plunges to his death. The bridge would, in a sense, seem to have failed. But the question is, who failed? The, the bridge builder? The bridge? Or the man? And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. In the same way, because man didn't keep the covenants of God, God had set up a way that if they would trust in him by faith, it was never about law-keeping. The, the law-keeping was actually just the rails, the guardrails to keep you pointed to God. The law was only given to show you your need for God so you would trust in the giver of the law. Those were just the guardrails. But, not, but man couldn't even stay on the bridge. He couldn't even stay within the law, couldn't stay within the boundaries. That doesn't mean God failed. It means man has failed. So he answers the question. He says, well, of what value is it then of being a Jew and having a circumcision, external rights? He says, it's a lot of value in every way. First of all, you've been given the very oracles of God. You've been given God's very words. You have a huge advantage. And maybe you're thinking, you know what, I grew up in a Christian home and maybe it wasn't the best background, but you had some understanding of God's word. If you have God's word, that's a huge advantage. You can at least know who God is. You have the ability to understand God, to understand who you are and who God is and to respond to him. It doesn't mean you have or will, but it's a big advantage. The thing, though, is that God's word is meant to be responded to. It's meant to be believed. His word is meant to be trusted in, to be acted on. So it's not as if God's word has failed somehow. If you have not placed your trust in God's word, it's that you failed to trust and receive his righteousness. The Jews were given these covenants by which they could enter in relationship with God and approach God and and some of the people of Israel really did have a relationship with God and, and believe in him by faith. But as Paul's been saying, religious knowledge, religious information, just having the book, just having the Bible on the shelf is not enough. It, it doesn't make you righteous. Religious people can be unfaithful to what they know. Many religious and morally good people are unfaithful. And they don't actually trust God. 
does that mean somehow that God's not faithful? Well, no, that'd be ludicrous. It'd be like saying that the bridge builder is responsible for the drunk driver who goes off the bridge. So Paul dresses in verse 3. He says, what if, look down your Bibles for me. He says in verse 3, now what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? That's what he means is that clearly some were faithful. Now the reality is later on in Romans, he basically says that most have not been faithful in the sense that they refused to believe, they refused to trust in God, and they rejected him. And so he, he shows us, he says the Jews, they relied on the law, their external observances. They relied on this ritualistic keeping of the law, and, and they weren't accepted by God, but they weren't accepted by God because they didn't trust in God. It was their faithlessness that kept them from receiving God's promises. Not God's faithlessness. God remained faithful The reason they weren't accepted is because they weren't faithful to God in their hearts. And you think, wait a minute. How were we accepted by God? Is it by looking like a good Christian, by being right, by doing good, by giving, by whatever measure you have? Because they weren't circumcised in their hearts by faith. And then in verse 4, God says, I mean, Paul says, by no means let God be true, though everyone else is a liar. Look down your Bibles. It says, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and, and prevail when you are judged. He's saying, by no means. He says, God remains faithful even if you are faithless. And he's saying, in effect, that mankind has proven themselves to be liars. Mankind says, and the Jews said, religious people say that they believe in God. Religious people say that they have the truth. Religious people say that they know God, that they know the right way to act. Religious people say by their external actions that, hey, I really believe what I say. But in their actions, they reveal that they're truly liars from the heart. Because they say they trust in God, but they really trust in their own works. They trust in their own ability. They trust in their own righteousness. What are you trusting in this morning? Are you trusting in your outward ability to be moral, to be religious, to be good? It says God is the one to be proven to be true. Even those who trust in their works say they trust in God and really are liars. And then Paul quotes Psalm 51.4 from the Septuagint, almost word for word. And the context of this psalm is that David, he has sinned, um, tried to keep it secret. He did a bad job at it, but he sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then not only did he commit adultery with Bathsheba, he, after he committed adultery, he tries to cover it up and, and pretend as if it was really her husband and her were together, and, and she got pregnant by her husband, not by David. And then he... He sends her husband out to war and puts him in the very front to kill him so that he can justify taking her as his wife. And Nathan goes and he confronts David. And in Psalm 54, he knows that he's ultimately sinned against God. And look in, look in your Bibles. Or I might have an overhead for you. Psalm 51, verse 3. This is David. He says, For I know my transgressions, And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now this is what Paul is quoting this last half here. He says, so that you may be justified in your words 
and blameless in your judgment. He knows that it's not God's problem. God's not the cause of his sin. He knows that his sin is against God. And he's done with evil in God's sight so that God might be justified or shown to be in the right. And he confesses his sins. But it's only after David sees his own sin and confesses his failure that he asks God to wash him and to make him clean. That's what our failure is meant to do. Our failure is meant to drive us to God, to see that God is just and right, and we are not. And our, our, our failure, our sins, our weakness, our unrighteousness is meant to get us to a place where we say, God, wash me or I'll never be clean. So then Paul looks at a third question here, and he's taking each time, each question one at a time, and Some would argue that if man's unrighteousness magnified God's righteousness, then how could God punish man for being unrighteousness? You know, after all, wasn't he just showing off God's righteousness? Did you get that? So I know it's kind of hard logic to follow, but if if somehow man's unrighteousness makes God's righteousness more evident, and if somehow man's unrighteousness makes God's righteousness more glorious, more holy, if our unholiness makes God appear more holy, then what's the problem? You know, I think sometimes we can feel that way. We know it's not a big deal. I just like God's grace all the more. Isn't, isn't, aren't I just showing off God's righteousness? And so Paul in verse 6 responds emphatically. He says, certainly not. And then he says, if that were the case, then, then God couldn't punish the world that we know deserves judgment, that we want to be judged. There's a lot of people who've committed heinous sins that in our hearts we know need judgment and that we think need to be judged and we hope God will judge. That's our trust in one sense. He's saying if your unrighteousness magnifies God's righteousness and you think it gets you off, then God, has, God wouldn't be able to judge anybody. But no self-respecting Jew or truly Bible-believing Christian would ever argue that. So Paul's now saying that if the Gentiles deserve to be judged, and God does so justly, or if the person who's the mass murderer or the serial rapist deserves to be judged, then then won't all of you who are equally unrighteous receive God's just judgment? He's making this kind of argument, and you think about this illustration for a moment. Imagine that there were three swimmers, and they set out from the east coast of the United States, and they were hoping to reach the United Kingdom in their swimming this vast ocean they were tra- hoping to go across. And you, the first swimmer, he, he doesn't know how to swim. He gets in the water. As soon as he's above his head, he drowns. He's drowned. He's dead, right? The second swimmer, he's an okay swimmer, but he's not really that good. And so he swims about a half a mile or so, gets really tired out. He succumbs to the waves, and he drowns, and he's dead, so the first one is drowned and dead. The second one is drowned and dead. And I'll imagine that Michael Phelps gets in the water. And he's a phenomenal swimmer. The, the most winningest gold medalist, whatever, of, of all time. So he gets in the water and he swims furiously for, let's say, for days. But eventually he gets to the point where he succumbs and he, he dies and drowns. They're all dead and drowned. They're all unrighteous. There's no gradients. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here. They're all dead. They're all considered dead. They're all drowned equally. 
And, and, and we're all unrighteous. There's not like degrees of unrighteousness. You're unrighteous, you're dead. You're unrighteous, you're drowned. You're unrighteous, you're, you're unable. All of, all of us equally deserve God's wrath and punishment. And then it, it goes in verse 7 and somebody says, well, if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. If I lie, and I'm not really who I say I am, and I don't really believe in and trust in him, but if that means that God is glorified, why am I still condemned? Well, that argument's so absurd that Paul doesn't even really pay any attention to it. You know, some people make the argument, Paul says, of why not just do evil so I can see my need for God or so God's mercy can be even greater? And Paul says, if you really believe that, the condemnation is just. And he makes the point in verse 9 that really the second main idea we're going to look at today, which is that man's failure means mankind is under sin and needs deliverance. Man's failure means mankind is under sin and needs deliverance. The problem with the drunk driver I mentioned earlier was, was not the bridge. It wasn't the rails. The problem with the drunk driver was, was, was not the barriers. It wasn't the path he was on. The problem with the drunk driver is he was under the influence. You know, that's actually the term that's given, driving under the influence, DUI, right? In life, we are driving under the influence of sin. We are under sin. Once you give in to alcohol as an alcoholic, it controls you in a sense, and you become out of control, so to the point where you drive off the bridge. And Paul is saying here that the problem with mankind is that you now are under sin. You are under the influence of sin, and it is controlling you, and you cannot do anything but succumb to its influence. Look in verse 9. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've all already charged that both, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He says, yes, there are some advantages to being a Jew. Yes, there are advantages to being raised in a Christian home. Yes, there are advantages to having the Bible, to believing and knowing the truth. There are advantages to that. But unless you place your faith and receive a righteousness from outside of yourself and place your faith in Christ, you're still under sin. And then he goes on, he goes on to prove his case by quoting the Old Testament. And we have really in verses 10, oh man, all the way down to verse 17. We have this quote after quote. He is stringing together a whole list of quotes from the Old Testament. One after the other is a string of quotes. And if you were a good Jew, you would have recognized these quotes. That he is, he is proving that even in the Old Testament, you could not be saved by your works, and that man's totally unrighteous, which is really the third point that we come to now, beginning in verse 10. Mankind is totally unrighteous. The Reformers put it a different way, but I, I love how Paul puts it because it's Scripture, and he says man is unrighteous, completely unrighteous. The Reformers would have taken that word and say, well, we're depraved, we're, we're unable we're, we're corrupt in all our ways. And Paul uses a ton of Old Testament evidence. He's like a lawyer in a courtroom right now in verses 10 and following. And he's using this, this huge body of evidence, but it's not stuff he's making up. And he's pointing at him, he says, your own law condemns you. 
the whole Old Testament, all the scriptures, they show that you're completely unrighteous, totally unrighteous. You know, prior to, to Jesus stopping Paul on the way to kill Christians, Paul actually believed and assumed that he had a righteousness in his, in his works, in the law, apart from faith in God from the heart. And he was vigorous in persecuting Christians because he was trying to keep himself and the Jews pure and undefiled. But he should have seen it, and so should the Jews, so should we. That we are totally, utterly, totally unable to be truly right before God on our own. We're not as bad as we could be in every way, but we're not righteous as we should be in any way. And this idea of man's total inability to save himself and man's total depravity is not a Protestant doctrine. It's not even a New Testament doctrine. A man's total inability to rescue himself, to the utter total depravity of human nature is seen in the very first, first book of the Bible in Genesis 6. If you remember back in the story of after the fall and, and God created a way for man to be not naked anymore and... Mankind left themselves, his depravity is unchecked, so that by Genesis 6, he, he, had, he had become so depraved and, and so sinful that God says, enough, man is not salvageable. I'm going to wipe out all of creation. I'm going I'm to keep a remnant that looks to me. But aside from Noah and his family, mankind is completely unrighteous, totally worthless. And then we see that in the book of Job, although it's not chronologically in your Bible the earliest, it was probably the earliest book written about 4,000 years ago, was the book of Job. And Job, from back then, every good Jew should have read the book of Job. And Job, back then, he wrote in, in Job 14, he says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Really referring to man, he says, There's not one. Job 15, 14, he says, What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of woman that he can be righteous? Even Job 4,000 years ago got this. And Paul is saying, The body of evidence I, he's quoting from proves that man can't be righteous. One of the greatest prophets ever, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But he was pointing forward the one who would take our unrighteousness. Jeremiah, skip ahead, I think another slide. Jeremiah 4, the prophet Jeremiah says, For my people are foolish, they know me not, they're stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. He went so far to say that man is deceitful i mean his heart's deceitful and sick he says in in jeremiah 17 9 the heart is deceitful he says above all things desperately sick who can understand it the greatest king of israel david he wrote that in psalm 14 he says the fool says in his heart there's no god they're corrupt they do abominable deeds there is none who does good Paul's quoting all these, paraphrasing all these. He says, the Lord looks down from heaven, the children of man see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And here's, here's God's answer in verse 3. They have all turned aside. 
altogether they have become corrupt. See this idea of man's complete corruption, radical corruption, it's, it's an Old Testament thing. He said, there is none who does good, in verse three of Psalm 14, not even one. Solomon, perhaps the wisest man who ever lived, or will live, and Solomon said in, in Ecclesiastes 7, he says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So Paul is quoting this body of evidence in, in verse 10 down to verse 17, and he drives home this point that no one on their own power can please God. And, and Jews, by the way, moral people, by the way, you should know this. And he says that man's unrighteousness leads to corruption in every way, and he paints this picture for us in the, in the scripture there. And he, he paints this picture of this whole man being corrupt. And, and he starts with the understanding. He says, man is, look down your Bible, it says man is corrupt in his understanding. No one understands. You're corrupt in understanding and your mind. Then he says, you're corrupt in seeking. You're you're corrupt in your eyes. But not only that, you're corrupt in doing. No one one understands. No one seeks. No one does good. So you're corrupt in the mind and the eyes and the hands. And and then he quotes, he says, "You're, you're corrupt in our tongues. He's painting this picture of this man who is complete in the corruption in every way. And so vile in that corruption, the venom of asps. And an asp, by the way, was this extremely venomous snake that if it bit you, you would die if you didn't immediately cut it out, cut the corruption out where it had bitten. You corrupt in the mind and the eyes and the hands and the tongue. And then you look down at verse 14. He says, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He is giving us a picture of man's total corruption. Radical in the sense of in every part of us corrupt. Now that doesn't mean that we can't do some good things. It just means in every good thing we can't do it perfectly. We can't do it right. We can't do it with perfect and right and good morals. And so we are totally corrupt, radically corrupt. Look in verse 15. He's, he's painting this picture from the top down. You, you're corrupt in, in the mind, in the eyes, in the hands, in the mouth. And, and, and now in verse 15 he says you're corrupt in the feet. Everywhere you go, he says, you're swift to shed blood. And there are paths. Everywhere you go are ruin and misery. And then not only that, are you corrupt in all of, all of your ways. He says, you're corrupt in your relationships as well. Look in verse 16 and 17. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace. Speaking about peace between others. Peace between God. Relationships there. The way of peace they have not known. Are you getting the picture here of man's complete and utter or total depravity? Not utter in the sense of in every way completely, utterly depraved as much as you could be, but totally depraved in the sense of in every area, in every part of who we are. In all of this, he says, look in in verse 18, he says, because there is no fear of God before their eyes. And he's driving home the message that as a people, the Jews or the religious the morally upright Christians, whatever, you're not better than other people. None of even the good people in the passages that he quoted were morally flawless. None of them were consistent in their obedience. All of the passages that Paul quotes, interestingly enough, it's about someone who considers himself righteous or maybe is seen as righteous, like David. 
But was David really righteous in his actions? Was David really truly righteous or did he receive a righteousness from God? And that's what Paul's showing. He's, even the people who seem to be righteous need a righteousness apart from themselves. So he makes the point, he says, no matter who you are, look in verse 19, he says, no matter who you are, the fourth point we have this morning is mankind's unrighteousness makes us accountable to God. Your unrighteousness makes you accountable to God. Look in verse 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. What he's doing is he's showing that through quoting all of these Old Testament scriptures, he's proving no one is righteous on their own. Everybody, whether you have the law or don't have the law, you're completely unrighteous and accountable to God. He's saying all of nature, as he was saying back in in chapter one, all of nature testifies of the fact that you should give honor to God and thank God, and you don't do that, you're unrighteous, and then you prove that by your sin, and you who have the law, you prove that you are unrighteous as well, that by the law, you're unrighteous in your actions, and so everybody's accountable for God. The whole world, Jew and Gentile, is justly accountable to God for being unrighteous and wicked, evil, deceitful, disobedient, and rebellious. And then now he brings us to this final point, this, this point of desperation. And, and really, Paul's readers were probably feeling very desperate. And I think we're meant to feel that way as well. I think we're meant to feel really desperate. And he makes this point in verse 20 that mankind needs righteousness given to us apart from works. Look down at verse 20. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That word for justified there is the same as made righteous. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or made righteous in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He says what the law does is the law reveals just how bad we really are. That we can't even stay on the lane. We, we can't stay in the guardrails. We're too drunk under the influence of sin. And the law just shows that. It makes it evident when we blow through it. No one by living right will ever be justified or declared righteous. And you know the problem for all the world's religions, except for Christianity, they share something in common, at least functionally. They at least functionally teach that in order to be accepted by the higher power or God or whatever other religions call God, in order to be saved or ascend or whatever word they use, they have to purify themselves and do certain acts. Even those who say they don't believe in God, they generally agree, well, good behavior is it's what makes one acceptable. Bad behavior is what makes one unacceptable. But Christianity here teaches that no one will be justified by anything you do. You can't be good enough. You can't be acceptable enough based on your works. You can't be a good enough person that God will accept you. No matter if you are a a brand new swimmer and you drown early or you're Michael Phelps and you drown miles and miles and miles into the journey, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, you are still unrighteous. In the law, it's meant to expose our sins as sins. Later on, Paul will tell us, when the law came, I died. 
The law exposes our moral bankruptcy. It, it, it exposes the fact that we're unable to keep the precepts of God on our own. And he says, no one gets a not guilty verdict by your actions, no matter how good you seem to be. And maybe you're, you're here today and you think, well, you know what? I've lived a basically good life. Really? In comparison to who? Other people or God? That's what Paul is saying. You, you might think you're a pretty good swimmer. You might be Michael Phelps as far as righteousness goes, but you still will die in your unrighteousness. In comparison to, I don't know, a blue whale, you're nothing, you know, as far as a swimmer goes. Well, in comparison to God, we're completely and totally, utterly unrighteous. And that's the standard that God has, complete righteousness. No one will be justified by God by their own works. We're desperately in need of some other way to be justified. We need somebody else to justify us, don't we? You know, Jesus said something interesting when when he was teaching. And he says, if you want to follow me, you you have to take up your cross. You have to die to yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What did he mean? What he meant was that you have to die to any trusting in your own ability you have to draw die to trusting in any righteousness of your own consider yourselves dead to that and alive in him you know it's not much more humbling and embarrassing a thing than to admit we can't do something none of us likes to be helpless and a lot of guys don't go to the doctor because we don't like to admit that we're really sick and we, we need help. That's not all guys, but it's most of us. Or at least when you get older, past 40, and you're like, I don't, I don't need doctors, you know. But we do. You know, as a parent, I want to be that guy who's encouraging and whose kids hear my voice in their ears all the time, pushing them to excel and encouraging them. And I want to be that guy who stands the silence saying, you can do it! You know, I, I, but as a Christian parent, you know, the worst thing I could ever do for my kids is that to, to let them think that they can do their life on their own without being rescued. The worst thing I could ever do as a parent is to, to give my kids the notion that they could do life on their own without God, that they can be good enough or strong enough or have people like them enough. And if I told them they could do it on their own, it would be propagating the biggest, oldest, most damning lie that humanity has ever come up with. It'd be to tell them that they can be their own God, or at least that they can be self-sustaining as God. We are completely unrighteous. We are not self-sustaining. We are not God. You know, God intended us for, to glory in our creaturely dependence on Him and to rely on Him. What's the very first thing that that man did? Man committed an act of self-reliance, thinking he could be God, thinking he was righteous on his own, thinking he had the ability to be equal with God and didn't need God. You know, my kids were toddlers. They would somehow find my car keys and play with them, and they... I think they like the sound when they jingle them and they put them in their mouths and they like the textures. And imagine, though, if my kid had, had, a, had my keys for a while, you know, from six months old now. They're two years old. They've had my keys in their hands for, for a year and a half. Now they say, okay, Dad, I've got the keys and I've had my hands for long enough. I'm, I'm ready to drive. That'd be pretty absurd. 
See, now I'm, I'm ready to drive, and by the way, I'm going to take the car out. I'm going to go out on the, I can't, I can't think of any really dangerous, fast-paced road here. We are in the south, after all. Maybe Atlanta, but I, I, I grew up outside of D.C., so, you know. I'm ready to go out and drive the D.C. Beltway in rush hour as a two-year-old. That would be absurd. Or maybe it would be as absurd as, you know, all of our kids walk to like 10 months old, and that's a parent's nightmare, by the way. You know, they don't have the brains to be able to, to, to keep themselves out of trouble, but they have the feet to get them into trouble. And so imagine if, if 18 months old, one of my kids said, Dad, I got this whole walking thing down. I'm going to cross both sides of I-85 on foot now at 8 in the morning because I think that's the best time to cross, and no traffic will be there. The road will be fairly free. I'm sure that's the best thing to do and the best time to do it. I, I know how to look both ways. I'll be fine, really. I'm two. I'm pretty fast. You know, imagine if they said, I, 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 and started to do that. You know, it'd be terrifying. We'd probably do everything in our power to say no to our kids in either one of those illustrations because we're fairly certain the outcome would be deadly. We do everything in our power to stop them from ridiculously trusting in themselves, from, from thinking that they understand, from thinking that they know the way, from thinking that they're strong enough to do it on their own. That would be the most awful thing is to leave them in that place where they thought they could do it on their own because it would kill them. And yet, for some reason, as humans, we think God, infinite God who knows all, all-powerful God who's able to do all, who's not bound by time or space or any constraints, well, God, we've got this whole being perfect thing down. I think I can, I can do some things pretty good now, God, and I think I'm just going to trust that I can really be good on my own. But we do that. How absurd is that? You know, it'd be like my child turning around halfway through crossing 85 at 18 months old and saying, hey, Dad, look, I'm doing great. Isn't this fun? And they don't see the 18-wheeler barreling down. If you're putting any hope in any righteousness of your own, you're just as equally foolish. But all of us are tempted to do that. Even Christians are tempted to put our trust in our own righteousness and our ability. And you know what? That's when we really struggle. When we're, when we're tempted, we feel discouraged because we're not good enough. Um, what we need to do is say, yes, that's right. I am not good enough on my own, but Jesus has made me righteous. He's given me all of his goodness. If you go back before the fall and creation, before sin, the worst thing that man could have done was to think that he could do life on his own terms apart from God, to think that he understood, to think that he knew God better than God and yes exactly what he did and what's Paul trying to get us to do he's trying to get us to renounce any hope in ourselves because that's when God's power for salvation through the gospel really begins to reveal itself it's it's when as he says your mouths are stopped and it's this picture of putting your mouth over your putting your hand over your mouth like in the book of Job God took Job through so much calamity so that he could bring Job to the place where Job realized, I, I, I can't do this on my own. I don't understand. I don't know. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. And now Paul says the same thing here. Look down your Bibles. Verse 19, he says, The law speaks to those who are under law, so that every mouth may be stopped. 
and the horrible ones accountable to God. And so today I want to encourage all of us to put our hands over our mouths and say, God, I can't. I'm not righteous enough. I'm not good enough. God, I need you in every way. You need to, to proclaim that message to yourself every day. That God, on my own, I am completely unable. God, I need a righteousness that comes apart from me. And Lord, I'm going to trust that there is a righteousness apart from me. It's only when we say, God, I'm not strong enough, that God says, yes, but you can have my strength. You can rely on me. You can have me ever and always with you. If you look to me as your God, look to him as your creator and loving father. The whole Christian walk is a walk of dependency. Acknowledging continually we can't, but he can. Continually confessing we're not good enough on our own that we must have God. And here's the good news. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Greek. So why don't we go ahead and stand, and we're actually going to participate in communion because we need to remember a righteousness that comes not from ourselves. So go ahead and stand up, if you will, and the ushers, if you go ahead and begin passing out the bread and the juice. Once you remain in, in, a, in an attitude of worship, So please don't talk to those around you or engage in conversations. Um, The band is going to begin to play and we're going to sing the song, All I Have is Christ. Because really our our hope for salvation, ushers, if you go ahead and please start passing out the the elements if you can. It would be great. Thank you. Um, All we have is Christ. But he is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Maybe you're struggling in some area of your life. Maybe you are a believer. Maybe you are a Christian, and yet you're struggling profusely in an area of your life. Maybe you're struggling in relationships. Maybe you're struggling at home. Maybe you're struggling with a coworker. Maybe you're struggling with your own sin power of God for salvation in every area of your life as well, not just when you first become a believer, but the power of God for salvation in every area of your life is, it comes as you acknowledge, God, I'm not righteous, I can't do this. But God, I place my faith in your righteousness. And he says, the righteous shall live by faith. So maybe acknowledge your weakness today. If you're not a believer, if you've not yet placed your faith in God, you need God to rescue you. I'd encourage you to admit or confess your complete unrighteousness and ask him to rescue you, and he will. And he'll give you his strength, and he'll transform you and make you new and give you righteousness and enable you by faith to walk in righteousness. So when we sing the song,